All right, we're in Mark chapter 13 this morning. Please turn with me there in your Bibles. Mark chapter 13, as we're going through the Gospel of Mark. Jesus challenges us to watch for his second coming. The scene is his last week, a few days going to the cross, his trial, his crucifixion. The disciples ask a question, Christ gives an answer. This text is full, it is jam-packed with stuff, so we're going to jump right into it this morning. Jump, look with me in verse 1 of chapter 13. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, See what manner of stones and what building are here. In chapter 12, Jesus is at the temple, the temple mount, being accused, having those come to him, asking him questions. And Christ responds perfectly, the perfect spotless lamb. They make their way off of the temple mount. The disciples are like, Jesus, do you see these stones? And it helps us to understand the history at this point because Herod has been doing a remodel of the temple. It started B.C., about 19 B.C., and wouldn't be finished till 64 A.D. So over 70 years of a building project. And the disciples are in awe of this building project that takes place. Josephus was a Jewish historian, and he gives us details about the stones. He says, they were large white stones, polished and generously decorated with gold. It covered one-sixth of the land of old Jerusalem. To the Jews, nothing was as magnificent or formable as the temple. The gates were 150 feet high, made out of brass, brass gates, The stone's 40 feet long and 20 feet thick. Think of that, a stone, 20 feet long. Or excuse me, 40 feet long and 20 feet thick. So they're impressed by this building, this temple that is being erected. In verse 2, And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another. They shall be thrown down. Jesus predicts the destruction of Herod's temple this temple that he remodeled. And in fact, the destruction would happen just six years after it was completed. 70 AD, the Roman general Titus sieges Jerusalem because there are zealots that were trying to overthrow the Roman Empire, Jewish zealots. So he comes and he seizes it, and he gives order to his soldiers and says, we're going to take Jerusalem, but don't destroy the temple. Probably because Herod has just put so much work into it. Yet, What happened and what took place is the soldiers went in and destroyed the temple anyway. Burned it, caught it on fire, and overturned the stones. The words of Jesus Christ were fulfilled exactly. What impressed the disciples didn't impress Jesus. And that's the case a lot of times in my life. I think probably the things that I'm excited about and I'm impressed with, Jesus is saying, no, You really shouldn't be oppressed with that. That, That's not something that should be grasping your attention. This provokes a question from the disciples. Now as they sat on the Mount of Olives. So they've come off the temple now through the Kidron Valley to the top of Mount Olives. Maybe about a 20 minute walk, half hour walk at most. The Mount of Olives looks down onto the Temple Mount. Beautiful spot, also very significant because when Christ ascends after his resurrection to return to the Father, he does it from the Mount of Olives. 
when he is going to return, he's going to return on the Mount of Olives. So they're sitting with Jesus, and they ask this question. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all things will be fulfilled? Matthew 24, verse 3 is a parallel text, and I read to you in this question, it says, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In the mind of the disciples, catch this, for the temple to be destroyed must mean it's the end of all things. It'll be difficult for us to understand this passage this morning if we don't understand the question. The question is, what is leading up to the end of of the age. What is leading up to the sign of your coming, your second coming? A few weeks ago, about a month ago, Pastor Robert gave a message out of Matthew 24 and then focusing on Matthew 25. If you didn't hear that message, it was a very powerful message. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But Mark 13 and Matthew 24 are called the Olivet Discourse. And in fact, it's Jesus' longest answer to any question that he was given. As we go through uh, these events, it's important to also understand what we consider to be the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The rapture is talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to read that. It's where the church is caught up into the clouds. Christ comes in the clouds and we're caught up into the clouds to forever be with the Lord. That is different from the second coming of Jesus Christ, where Christ returns on the Mount of Olives and he rules and reigns for a thousand year period. So that's important as we go through this and look at this chapter. So Christ begins to answer this question. What is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered them, began to say, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. One of the signs leading up to the end of all things, the second coming of Jesus Christ, is there's going to be a lot of spiritual deception. And the deception takes place in the name of Jesus. So people coming, saying, the name of Jesus, they, that I'm walking with Jesus. They're selling you a false bill of goods in the name of Jesus and in the name of God's word. So take heed. The word take heed is given to us four times in this chapter. That we're to watch, that we're to be on guard, that we're to make sure that we're not spiritually deceived. That's going to be an emphasis in this chapter. How do you make sure that you're not spiritually deceived? And in fact, it's your responsibility as a believer. It's not my responsibility for you or anybody else's. It's yours. And the only way is to know the Word of God, to study it for yourself, to read it, to spend time in it. And through that, then you'll identify, this is wrong. This is false teaching. This doesn't, doesn't add up. But if we don't log the time in God's word, we'll make ourselves very prone to that spiritual deception. In verse 7, But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. Another sign is there will be wars and rumors of wars. And this is going to continue with greater frequency, rapidity, until the coming of Jesus Christ. 
there will be no peace, there will be no cease of wars until Christ returns, until Christ rules and Christ reigns. And we're not to be surprised, we're not to be troubled, we're to be at a place of rest, knowing this is leading up to Christ's coming. This is a really important teaching of the second coming of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is talking about on a big picture. And he's saying, this is where all events are leading, it's leading to my coming where I'm going to conquer. I'm going to rule and reign. And as we study the scriptures and we read the scriptures, we have to understand it's coming to this climax. It's coming to the, the victory of Jesus Christ. And yes, it's going to get difficult. And yes, it's going to get crazy. And there'll be more and more signs leading up to his coming. But we know as believers, it's coming to the victory of Jesus Christ. It's coming to his reign. Because I sense in you already as we bring up this topic, there's a lot of fear and trepidation. Like, oh, man, wars and rumors of wars. That, that doesn't sound like good news. It ends in good news. It's leading to something great. And if it wasn't leading to the second coming of Jesus Christ, then God's plan wouldn't have this finality. It just kind of goes on into infamy. But God says, no, there's going to be that moment of, of finality. In verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. The word nation in the Greek is ethnos, which we get our English word ethnicity. It's talking about different people groups. Races rising up against other races, cultures rising up against other cultures. This is going to continue to ramp up until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Kingdom against kingdom speaks of dominion or rulers, more traditional nations that we think of today. Countries rising up against other countries. Earthquakes in various places. This is something that is quantitative, that we can look at with absolute certainty. Are more earthquakes happening in more diverse places? The answer is yes. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, whether you believe the Bible or you don't believe the Bible, they are happening. So it might be a good idea to get earthquake insurance. As a, I don't know, possibly. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and troubles. The word troubles speaks of pestilence. We call Plagues. We're seeing more and more of that take place. Ebola and all of these strange things that seem to come out of nowhere. And that's going to continue to happen. And this is the beginning of the sorrows. Matthew 24, remember the parallel text. Jesus gave the analogy that it's like birth pains. A woman in labor. The closer to the baby being born, the more intense the contractions. The more intense that these events will become. In verse 9, but watch out for yourself, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. The rise of persecution. Going into the early church, we know that they were primarily persecuted in the synagogues, similar to Christ by those Jews that reject Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're going to be beaten in the synagogues. You're going to be brought before rulers and kings. We see that with the Apostle Paul, for my sake, for a testimony to them. This is another sign leading up to the second coming 
of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we're seeing in these last five years, very current, is the rise of persecution and Christians being martyred. Some that research these things say there's more Christians right now that are being martyred than at any point in in history. What's been taking place in the Middle East is absolutely mind-blowing in Iraq and Syria. And if you know a little bit of the history of, of the region, when Saddam Hussein was in power in Iraq, and he was no saint and no, no great leader, but one thing that he did do was provide refuge for Christians, where, where Christians in the Middle East could come live in relative peace as a minority uh, in that region. And as he was overthrown, and now the instability there, and with ISIS, one of the things that they've systematically done is persecuted and killed Christians. The same is with Syria. Assad has done horrific things and should be held accountable. But as a dictator, one thing he did as well was he tolerated the Christian minority. So, so you have people that came, Christians that came from all over the region to Syria and Iraq, one of the largest hubs of, of Christians in that, in that place, and now they've been martyred and they have been, been persecuted. One of the places that's not normally on our radar for this, but is always on the top of the list for martyring Christians and persecuting Christians is North Korea. Since 1948, It's estimated that North Korea has killed 400,000 Christians, almost half a million Christians. And that's what what we know of that that takes takes place. We're also seeing a change in our own country. It's no longer culturally acceptable to be a Christian. Our culture is turning against Christ. If you follow Christ and you believe the Bible, you are in the cultural minority in our country. And we see this real change towards, towards believers But don't be afraid, don't be freaked out, because God does his greatest work when the church is persecuted. And I'm excited to see what God is doing in the world and doing in our country as things are being stirred up. In this Middle Eastern region, there's tremendous testimony of people getting saved and coming to know Christ as their Savior. And one thing we know from the Word is don't mess with the bride of Christ. That's that's Christ's bride, and he's going to take care of his bride and there's suffering involved, but the gospel goes forth in the midst of that suffering. It ties right into verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Another sign leading up to the end of all things is the gospel is going to go out to all nations. As we look at these things, we see this being fulfilled as well. The gospel has exploded to the nations. There's a lot of things that I don't like about the internet, One of the things is it seems to have killed curiosity. If you were to say, how long does it take to drive to Albuquerque? You used to have a conversation and kind of guess, and someone would go, ah, four and a half hours if you're driving fast. Some people, it takes six hours. But what do we do now? We get out Siri, and we say, how long does it take to drive to Albuquerque? It takes six hours to drive to Albuquerque. And it's killed curiosity. You you can't just have an open-ended question. Our kids grow up in a generation where they don't have to do that. They, they have all the facts at, at just a click of, of the button. But one of the things that God is using, he's always using things, is he's using the internet to allow the gospel to go to the nations. It's mind-blowing when you go to a remote place in Africa, in Uganda, and they have better cell phone service than we do here. 
I'm not exaggerating because they have newer technology, newer cell phone technology, and they never had landlines, and they skipped that whole process, and they have better technology, and people don't have much, but they've got a cell phone. And they're, ac- and they're accessing the internet, and they're exchanging money in these villages, in these huts, electronically, and no longer using cash. And with that, the nations are asking questions about the gospel. The nations are going on to, to Google and asking, who is Jesus? And Christians are in that place getting, getting the message out. Think what it's going to continue to be in 10 years. 10 years from now, is there going to be a place on the planet that you can't get on the internet? You go to these remote places, you get a Wi-Fi access, and you call home for free. You get a, you get a text, text for free. Things are really changing. Things are ramping up, and the gospel is going forth through people, through the internet, to all the nations. In verse 11, but when you're arrested, when they, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate on what you will speak. For whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So if you're brought in due to persecution, don't even worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to say. I've heard some pastors use this verse as an excuse to not study. Like, oh, the Holy Spirit will just tell me what to say. That is completely out of context. I'm not being persecuted right now. Though sometimes it feels like it. No, no, I'm not being persecuted right now. This is something that I should prepare for. Pastors should prepare and labor in the word of God. But if you're brought in because of persecution, God's going to tell you what to say. If you're called on the carpet at at your job because of your testimony of Jesus Christ, God's going to give you words. If a family member grills you, God's going to give you words. If a neighbor is upset with you because of Christ, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the necessary words to say. Verse 12, now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. There's such opposition towards Christ that fathers killing children because their children have received Christ as their Savior. That division amongst families because of the name of Jesus Christ. There's this exhortation to endure. Endure means to stand firm. Stand firm in your conviction of Christ, your commitment to the gospel. Verse 14, so when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So now Jesus is spe- speaking specifically to those who are in Judea, southern Israel, at the time of the abomination of desolation prophesied by Daniel. I want to cover some terms so hopefully nobody gets lost. What's the abomination of desolation? It's the Patriots winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> Just seeing if you're awake, seeing if you're with me this morning. That's not what Daniel was talking about. The the abomination of desolation is this. Abomination speaks of pagan idolatry in the temple. Abomination, the temple being desolated. Daniel chapter 9 is where Daniel predicted this. Sometimes in Old Testament prophecy, there is near and far fulfillment. 
The near, the close fulfillment was when Antiochus Epiphanes, before Christ was born, came in and slaughtered a pig on the burnt offering altar to the pagan god Zeus. That was the near fulfillment of this. Also another near fulfillment, AD 70, when Titus wiped out the temple. But yet there is one future. Christ is saying there is yet another fulfillment of this. It's Revelation chapter 13. The Antichrist will come in to the temple. He will desecrate the temple. And when those see that, then they must flee and run to the mountains. So we then understand that there will be another temple that is built. Right now, the temple is not built in Jerusalem. I don't know how that's going to play out. The temple, the Dome of the Rock is on the Temple Mount, but it will be built. It will be fulfilled. There will be another temple, and the Antichrist will come in and desecrate this. This event takes place three and a half years into the tribulation, the middle of the tribulation. Another term to define, what is the tribulation? The tribulation is a seven-year period described in Revelation as the wrath of the Lamb. God pouring out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. So as we look at these things, the question is, where does the rapture fit in? You know, when is the church taken out? And there's several views of the, the rapture. One is that there's a pre-tribulation rapture view, that the church is raptured before the tribulation, before God brings in this time of judgment. Another view is mid-tribulation, that at this point of the abomination of desolation, the church is raptured up. Another view is post-tribulation. At the end of the tribulation is when the rapture takes place. Another common view is pan-trib, however it pans out. I have no idea. And say, okay, however it pans out, that's my view on the rapture and the, the tribulation. So my personal view, it's my opinion, is I do believe in a pre-tribulation rapture view. And there's two primary reasons for it. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, where God gives us the doctrine of the rapture, he tells us that we're not appointed unto wrath, but we're appointed unto salvation. He's talking about the tribulation. That's the wrath that he has referred to. Christ took the wrath upon the cross. God's not judging his church in the tribulation. He's judging a Christ-rejecting world. The second is, as we'll see at the end of this passage, what Jesus gives us as the important application is that we're looking for his soon return. We're looking for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. The pre-tribulation rapture view is the only view that, in my opinion, that points to the fact that Christ could come today. Because if I believe in mid-trib, Christ can't come today. The tribulation hasn't started. The temple hasn't been built. If I believe in a post-tribulation rapture view, it's very obvious the tribulation hasn't began. So, so Christ couldn't come today. Now, having said that, there is a lot of people who love the Lord, who've studied the scripture, have brilliant minds and tremendous character, that don't agree on this subject of the rapture. I think we should honor that and respect that. And the second is, your position on the rapture does not affect your salvation. Let me say that again. It does not affect your salvation. It's not that when you stand before God, God's going to go, what was your view on the rapture? <laughs> oh, you got it wrong. Beep, psst, gong, right? What saves us? 
our belief in who Jesus is, what he's done upon the cross, responding to that in faith. So since that is true, love should win out for one another if we have opposing views on this, right? So you have a friend that is this view, a believer that that is that view. Say, okay, we can agree to disagree, and love is what wins in that discussion. Let's go on to verse 15. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Flee immediately. For those that are in Israel at this time that see the abomination of the desolation, flee to the mountains. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time. Not nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days." What is scripture saying here and what is it declaring to us? First is it says that there is a tribulation like the world has never seen. Though people have differing views on when the rapture will happen, everyone is consistent that God's word does teach that God is going to hold the world accountable. That there will be this period of his judgment. Have you ever wondered, God, when is it going to be enough? When we see all of the horrific things taking place in the world, the horrific things taking place in society, how could God be true to his character and not bring his judgment? Years ago now, Billy Graham said, if God doesn't bring his judgment, he's going to have to raise up Sodom and Gomorrah and apologize to them. There's an aspect of his character where he is consistent in his time where he brings judgment. There's one or two ways for us to deal with God's judgment. And the best is through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why the cross is so significant. He took the punishment that I deserve. But if people reject Jesus Christ, if culture and society rejects Christ, it's leading to this point of tribulation, of judgment. In the Old Testament, it refers to a lot. The wickedness of people causes the land to vomit them out. It gets to a point where the wickedness is so bad, the blood spilling upon the land, that even the land responds. So how much more so will God respond and bring that tribulation? It also tells us that God's going to shorten these days for the elect's sake, showing us that it is God's divine judgment, that he is the one that is bringing this judgment. There's a lot of people now that look at the book of Revelation as a complete analogy. They don't give it any credit that there will be this seven year of God's, God's judgment. I don't know how you can do that with reading this section of scripture. It's, it's very clear. It's not an analogy. It is God's judgment that he's going to bring. So who's the elect? Throughout scripture, we see different groups that are referred to as the elect or God's chosen, the nation of Israel, believers, the church, what we are today, and also those that will get saved during the tribulation. There will be many that will come to know Christ as their Savior during the tribulation, both Jew and Gentile. 
Verse 21, you guys still with me? There's a lot to take in. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I've told you all things beforehand. Spiritual deception, false Christs and false prophets. If someone comes to you and says, Christ has already returned, he's hanging out in northern Idaho. Don't believe him. Christ returned, everyone is going to see him in the clouds. There's not this second coming of Jesus Christ that was in South America or Central America to a small group of people that the world missed. A lot of false religions are built on a false teaching of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Be careful with false Christ and false prophets. The deception is going to become intense to the point where, if it were possible, even the elect might be deceived. Jesus is warning beforehand. In verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, so now we're talking after that seven-year period, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, creation itself giving a sign of the end. Saying the end is near, the second coming of Jesus Christ is near, the sun's darkened, the moon's not giving its light, stars are, are falling. Verse 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory. There he is in the clouds, and they'll see. It's very public. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Bringing the elect together. Could be referring to the nation of Israel. Could be referring to believers at those, that time or both. In verse 28, we have a parable in the midst of this teaching. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know the summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that if it is near, know that it is near at the doors. Jesus says, look, you know the fig tree. When the fig tree blossoms and then puts out leaves, you know the summer is near. We experience that as well, don't we? We start to see spring take place, and there's buds, and there's a blizzard, and there's some buds. And we know, okay, there will be a summer that happens here in Colorado. The lesson of the fig tree is this. When you see these signs taking place, you've seen the leaves, so you know the end is near. You know the second coming of Jesus Christ is near. When the abomination of desolation takes place, in this new temple that will be built, we know that the second coming of Jesus Christ is near. When creation is bearing its signs and says the sun is darkened, the moon's not giving light, we know that the end is near. As we see these things happening with more frequency, we know that the end is near. The end is near. That's the lesson of the parable of the fig tree. Verse 31 is sobering. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Heaven speaking of the galaxies, speaking of the stars and the atmosphere. Heaven will pass away. The earth will pass away. Meditate upon that for just a moment. Pike's Peak is temporary. 
what a fixture in our community and throughout history, but it is temporary. The sun is temporary. The Atlantic Ocean is temporary. The Pacific Ocean is temporary. It will pass away. But God's word endures forever. We are going to have some awesome Bible studies with the Lord in heaven. Taught by Jesus. When we get there, we don't want to be rookies with his word. Okay, Genesis, now, where's that? Oh, it's in the, it's in the beginning of the Bible. Okay. We want to go, oh yeah, I'm familiar with, with Genesis. I never got that out of it. Wow, that, that is incredible. The word of God is going to endure forever. But how many days of our life is spent on things that aren't eternal? We get focused on the things that aren't really going to last. The Bible speaks a lot about the earth passing away. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. The earth and its works, the cars, the jobs, the houses, all of it burned up. Isaiah 34 says, The hosts of heaven will be dissolved, and the heavens will be rolled up like a scroll. I like that. That's incredible. God's just going to be like, all right, I'm done with this. This season's done, but his word endures forever. In verse 32, But of that day and hour no one knows, even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. This day of Christ's return, no one knows the day or the hour except the Father. Apparently not even Harold Camping. You guys remember that dude? So he got real public saying that Christ was going to return, his second coming, on May 12, 2012. Lots of posters, lots of banners, a lot of publicity. Didn't happen because no one knows the day or the hour. So if someone tells you, I know that Christ is going to return on this day and that hour, they're blowing smoke because right here it says that only the Father knows. Here's the reason why. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. God wants us ready. God wants us prepared. He doesn't tell us when these things will be, so we'll live our lives in expectation of his imminent return. Watch and pray. Be walking with the Lord. Be alive spiritually. Don't be in a place of a rebellion to the Lord because you don't know when Christ is going to return. Verse 34, it's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch, watch, be ready. If you've ever had the experience of listing your home to sell it in a market like this, you know one of the things you have to talk about with your listing agent is how much notice do you need before someone can come look at your house? And they tell you if you really want to sell your house, you need to be willing to show it within one hour of getting a phone call. That causes you to live in an abnormal state. You're living in perpetual readiness, aren't you? The phone can ring at any time, and if you have young kids and 
all this cleaning and keeping, it, it, it's exhausting, right? It, why? Because you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. And spiritually, that's the lesson for us. We want to be faithful at Christ's return. And part of the watching is anticipation and excitement. God, I know that this world has fallen. I know that this world's sinful. I know that all of these things feel chaotic, but it's not chaotic to you. It's leading to your second coming. It's leading to you setting things straight. And I'm looking forward to your return. As believers, we shouldn't base our whole lives lock, stock, and barrel on this life. We should base it on who Jesus is and his second coming. But as we do that, it doesn't mean that we disconnect from this life. It means that we focus on other things. We focus on knowing him and making Jesus known. It's the wrong application of the second coming of Jesus Christ to just go, well, none of this matters anyway. I'm just going to check out. I'm not going to be involved. I'm, I'm not going to care. Christ wins in the end. Well, Christ wins in the end, and he wants as many as possible to be in his presence for all of eternity. In just a moment, we're going to take communion together. And even communion has an element of looking to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I want to read a few verses to you and just take these in that speak of Christ's return. This is 2 Peter 3 verses 11 and 12. It says, Therefore, since all things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? So in light of these things, what kind of person should I be? 1 John 3, verse 3, says, Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. Is it important to be watching and waiting for the return of Christ? Yes, because it produces in us a purity. I love this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. It says, Finally, therefore, is laid for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but on those who have loved his appearing. Paul says, hey, there's a crown that's waiting for me. This is not only for me, a crown of reward, but everybody who loves Jesus appearing. Everybody that's longing and waiting for Christ's return. Church, this is low-hanging fruit right here. This is a relatively easy crown to receive, isn't it? Why? Because all we've got to do is love his appearing. It means something to the Lord. He's like, oh, you're looking forward to my returning. You're excited about my returning. You're watching for the right things. I've got this special crown for you. However, I've got to tell you, most of my days are not spent looking for, longing for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. I don't know why it is. I believe it. I'm excited about it. But most of my days are spent looking at my shoes, trying to get through the day, trying to make it. Me and my team, my family, with let's get through today. What do we got to get done today? So many daily tasks. And I believe it's a real work of the Spirit in our lives to give us that hope of his second coming to where we're looking for his return.